And as we spoke about these last two times, Ephesus is this city that is a whole lot like Vancouver. It's a port city, it's a trade city, so there's people coming in from all over the world bringing spiritual ideas. It's a pluralistic society, which means they love the idea of many gods and anything you believe is cool, but the second you say there's one God in one way, everybody freaks out and says, whoa, whoa, stop killing our buzz, man. How do you know? How do you know this? It's a lot like the city of Vancouver. And so Paul goes to Ephesus, plants a church, leaves somebody else in charge, and starts communicating with this church through letters. And this book of Ephesians is his letter to the Ephesians. And the way that he talks kind of, get, kind of gives us a clue as to what the letter was that they wrote to Paul. Paul is essentially answering questions. And one of the questions that's coming through from the Ephesians as they look around is that they see a society where everybody does what makes them feel good. Your truth is truth. Do what you want. Do what makes you happy. Do what's pleasurable in the moment. And they're looking at their faith, their Christianity, and thinking, what, what is so great about being a Christian? And Paul is just the right guy to ask this question to because in verses about 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, they're all one sentence. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's like seven commas in there. Paul just like erupts in this explosion of praise for God and he's like, I don't have time for punctuation, comma. I don't have time for punctuation. God, it's good. God, it's amazing. He's done this, he's done this, he's done this. And he writes this incredibly long, grammatically horrendous sentence just exploding with praise for what God has done and telling them, what do we have in Christ? Are you kidding me? Let me tell you what we have in Christ. And Paul just goes off telling them how excited he is about Jesus and everything that Jesus has done for them. And so we're going to pick things up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. If you missed the other teachings, you can listen online. And it says this, speaking of Jesus, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And we're going to dig into what this mystery is. But the real question first is, why is this almighty God of the universe choosing to reveal himself to us? Why is he choosing to share himself with us? Why is he choosing to share this mystery with us? And you find it in verse nine, that it's according to his good pleasure because that is just who God is. At the core of his being, he is good. When we, when we talk about each other, when we interact as people, we wanna say, let me get to know the real you. And kind of the assumption is that whatever you're pretending to be, you're probably worse when you get underneath, underneath all the layers. But with God, you get under all, all the layers and you find that at his core, he is just good. Impossibly, consistently, permanently, infinitely good. It's just who he is. And so he wanted to share himself with us, not because he had a need to, but because we were almost just the natural byproduct of his goodness. It just happened because he's good and he wanted to share his goodness with his own creations. Let me hear you say, he is good. That's right, you guys are with me, I like that. So here it is, the mystery of his will, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the time, so in other words, when, when all the days of the earth are done, where however long this world is meant to go on for, it's reached its end. In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, the Father, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and both which are on earth, in him. So it's this mystery that was something previously unknown and is now being revealed. 
And what's being revealed is this, that at the end of time, at the end of this earth, Jesus is going to gather everything that belongs to him, including us, into himself. That's how it's all going to end. You know, it's harder being an unbeliever than it is being a believer. It's harder living without Christ and living without the Holy Spirit. It's harder. And, and, and that hit home for me this week, even when you look at Newtown. How do you process that without God? What's your hope? What's your hope? That you're going to die one day and the pain will be over? I don't know how you live without God because sooner or later you run into something that reminds you how desperately you need him. So in due time, in the fullness of time, all things will be gathered together around Christ, and this is your first fill-in, and for Christ. All things will be gathered together around Christ and for Christ. That is the flow of what is happening in the world today. It must be overwhelmingly depressing if you're not a believer in Jesus and you look at the world around you. And for most of us, for most people, we, we just live in denial of the world around us. But if you take an objective look, let's, let's just put faith to the side for a minute. If you take an objective look at the world, I don't know that there's a single person who would come up with the conclusion that we're trending up. I don't know, I don't know anybody that would come to that conclusion. Despite technology, despite everything, we're not trending up. And the great example I always give is you remember in, in the 50s and the 60s during the age of automation when they were going to build robots in factories, everybody said, this is great. We're going to have robots, so you'll only have to work four hours a day in a factory, and then the robot will do the rest of your job. But that's not what we did with technology, is it? We just realized that technology could allow a few people to make even more money and pay people even less. And that's what we did with our technological advances. We didn't use it to benefit one another. We just used it to further exploit each other. Despite trade and shipping, despite the fact that there is enough food to feed the world multiple times over at any given moment in time, entire warehouses full of food go spoiled so that it won't disrupt the market value of that food. And that's the world we created. So despite all our advances, we don't trend up we trend down, and if you're objectively looking at the world, I don't know how you can be an optimist about the future other than being in denial because you're hoping against hope that your kids will grow up in a better world than you did. But the truth is there's no reason to believe that. Please don't shoot yourself. The message gets better. Just hang with me, okay? But it's incredibly, incredibly, you're like, I was, I was hoping for a little more when I went to church, you know, than feeling like I wanted to jump off a bridge, but it's going to come around, so hang with me. But it's incredibly depressing if you don't know Jesus and you look at the world. But for those of us who do, for those of us who know what the Bible says, we understand that everything is on course. Everything is on track. Everything that's happening was predicted by Jesus thousands of years ago. And so for us, what we see is the day of the Lord approaching with increasing speed and the day of our hope and the hope of being in the presence of Jesus approaching more rapidly. And so if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Part of our great testimony is that we have peace when everybody else is freaking out because we're able to say, this is exactly how it's supposed to go down. Guess what? I know the ending. And it's really, really good. We win. That's the ending. And so the first three chapters of Genesis, as we said, show us what God's design looks like. It's glorious. It's incredible. There's, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no pain. There's no hurt. It's not even work. Adam and Eve didn't even have to work for food. That's, that's just awesome. Just hung around naked all day. All the single people are like, I'm with you. That's good. 
Let's bring this back. Let's bring back the kingdom. Come on, Jesus. So despite our best efforts, everything keeps getting worse. Jesus actually said violence would increase on the earth. And the description in the Bible is that the last days are going to be like the pangs of childbirth. And I've had five kids, and you're just sitting there one time, and everything's normal, and suddenly there's a movement. Everybody freaks out, and everybody panics, and then a little while passes, and everybody says, okay, okay, it's just, just the pizza. Everything's cool. And then there's another movement, and it happens, and then it happens again. But the next time it happens, it's closer than the first one. And the next time it happens, it's closer, and things start getting more and more and more rapid. And what the Bible says is in the last days, these traumatic events, earthquake, famine, war, desperation, tragedy, these things actually start happening closer and closer together like the pangs of childbirth, except at the end, a child isn't born. Jesus comes back to claim those who belong to him. And so that's what we see, and I want to tell you, don't be alarmed, because Scripture says these things are going to get closer and closer together, and you can choose anything you want. You can choose famine, you can choose earthquakes, you can choose mass murders and shootings, you can choose war, but there's an undeniable trend in our world that these things are pulling closer and closer together all the time, and we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said these things were going to happen. Jesus also said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so Jesus says, don't worry, you know the ending. You know the ending. But it's clear that we're not going to fix ourselves. But not only do we know our destiny, not only do we know where we're going, not only do we know how things end, but we know the reason why we're here. We know the reason for our creation. It's on your outline, Colossians 1.16. And Colossians has incredible similarities and parallels to Ephesians. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Jesus Christ, All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him, created by him, and for him. And you can put this on your outline. You were created by Christ and you were created for Christ. You were created by Christ and you were created for Christ. And ultimately, you're going to be with Christ. You're going to be with Christ. That is the reason for our being. You were not made for a relationship. You were not created for your job. You were not even created to help other people, first and foremost. You were not even made to parent. You were made by him and you were made for him. Before everything else in life, you were made for God, for a relationship with him. You can write this down. Your purpose is a relationship with God. If God created you to be an artist, you'll never be happy working a desk job. If God created you to be an accountant, you'll never be happy being an actor. We all understand that when it comes to what we do in life, we were created to do certain things. We have undeniably been given specific gifts which are evidenced just in the things that we enjoy doing. And we all realize that if we spend our life pursuing something that we weren't made to do, we're never going to be happy. What I really want to do is art, so I've decided to become an accountant. We, we would all say, what are you, what are you doing? That's, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. You said, yeah, but for, for me, it seems like the better way. And I'm, uh, I feel pretty good about it. We'd all say, are you, are you crazy? Are you insane? But every single one of us were made by a creator for a relationship with him. It is like any product. It has an intended use. 
And our intended use is relationship with God. So you will find that your life will never, ever work properly without Jesus. Ever. And you can break it down into every area of your life. The areas that God is in will work. The areas that he's not in will not work. You might keep the illusion up for a while, but sooner or later it'll be clear that it will not work without God. It won't work without him. Look at the world around us. It doesn't, it doesn't work properly without God. I, I'm very into politics, not as an activist, but as an observer, just because I love the Bible, and I'm fascinated by cultures and history and society, and, and I, I realize something when it comes to politics, that the great problem with a dictatorship is corrupt people, right? Corrupt people. And the great problem with communism is corrupt people. And the great problem with socialism is corrupt people. And the great problem with democracy is corrupt people. And so the issue in our world is not that we need better systems. The issue is that we need a better king. We need a better ruler. We need a better authority. We need leadership that's not corrupt. And by now we should have figured out that that person isn't walking on the earth right now. We need a better leader. We need Jesus, that's what we need. Because the truth is, we are the problem. And we don't work properly without God. We were made to be in relationship with our maker, the only one who's truly good. You were made by him, and you were made for him. Now watch this next phrase in verse 17 of Colossians 1. It says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. The, the term consist, or as some of your Bibles might say, all things are held together in him. The term consist or held together is actually a scientific term. It's a scientific term. The basic building block of all matter is the atom. We're going to go back to school for a little bit for a little science lesson here. Let's see how you guys do. So the nucleus of an atom consists of positively charged particles called Particles. They're particles. Close, close. It's the other one. That one more? Protons. Okay. Positively charged particles called protons. So you have the nucleus of the atom, and it's all these protons packed together, positively charged. And spinning around the nucleus and all those protons are Bueller? Bueller? No one? Electrons. Electrons. You guys are like, it's the weekend, man. Just like tell me what it is. Electrons. So you got all these electrons spinning around. And here's the interesting thing. Interesting thing. So you have neutrons and protons packed together in the middle of an atom. And you have these negatively charged electrons flying around it. There is a law of science called Colin's Law of Electricity. And this is what the law says. We've all done this when, when we're kids. Colin's Law of Electricity says... Like and similar charged particles repel each other. You ever had the magnets that are charged differently on the two ends and you have the two positive ones and you get big ones and you're like, Ugh, and they do that and you just can't get them to go together? That's Colin's law of electricity right there. Like and similar charges, positive and positive, negative and negative, they repel each other. They won't stick together. And here's what you find, that, that at the basic level of all matter is the atom. And in the middle of the atom are 
like and similar charged protons packed together, holding together, defying Colin's law of electricity every moment of history. And there's no scientific reason why they don't repel each other and just break apart. It's in violation of the laws of science. And scientists have, have no reason for this. They've come up with a term for it, but no explanation. They call it uh, atomic glue, is what they call it, or strong nuclear force. But coming up with a name for something is not the same as an explanation. So at the basic level of everything are these protons that shouldn't be together sticking together for some reason. Something is holding all things together. And Colossians 1 tells us that that something is a someone. It's the Lord at the bottom of everything, holding everything together. When you get down to it, is the power of God holding everything together. This is on your outline. All things were made by him. All things were made for him. And by him all things are held together. Jesus is the answer for one of the great mysteries of atomic physics. It's the Lord. And eventually when this old earth passes away, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It'll be that time when you and I can enjoy everything as God made it to be, where he is the ruler again, the only good and just ruler that we'll ever truly know. But when the earth dies, it is described in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. And Peter tells us scientifically what's going to happen. Peter says, Beloved, do not forget. He's saying, don't be ignorant about this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's talking about the promise of his coming, as some count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And here's what Peter is describing. He's describing a huge atomic explosion. Huge atomic explosion. Instantaneously destroying everything and melting the elements, as the scripture says. Everything in a moment will pass away. And for, for seconds, Bible scholars and theologians couldn't, couldn't even wrap their head around this. They couldn't even grasp a description of destruction on that sort of scale. The Chinese had fireworks, but we didn't have any kind of enormous bomb that could do destruction on a massive scale. And so theologians said, as they did with many things in the Bible, it's, it's got to be allegorical. It can't be real. It's got to be some sort of picture. But we know now that it's entirely possible, and it's completely literal. And so here's what I believe Peter is describing. Peter is describing the moment in time when the one who is holding all things together says, I'm letting go. And in a moment, the nucleus of every atom in the universe explodes and gets in line with Colin's law of electricity. And everything is just vaporized in a moment because God says, I'm done now and let's go. That's what Peter is describing. The mystery of the will of God is this, that all things are gathered together in Christ. All things will be gathered together in Christ. All things were made by him and are held together by his power. When I was preparing this message, uh, 
I was under heavy conviction while I was preparing it. And the great problem with teaching the Bible is you don't get to just teach the stuff you're good at. You don't get to just say, oh man, I am stinking at that in my own life. Let's skip that one and get to something I'm good at. Then I can teach with some authority. But, uh, but we're talking about a God this morning who holds all things together and holds us together. And man, that has, that has not been my life recently. There's not been the peace of God driving everything. There just hasn't been. And so I want to encourage you as we go through this, just be honest about where you are and let God speak to you. And I want to ask you, does, does your life feel scattered this morning? Do you feel like you're going in a million different directions? You're emotionally frayed, you're physically exhausted, you just look around you and nothing seems to be getting better. Relationships that you thought you are going to enjoy are just, just work. They're not pleasurable anymore. The mystery of his will is this, that in Christ, all things are held together. All things are held together. And to, to the extent today that you put Jesus in the center, singular, exclusive place of government in your life will be the extent today that you too are gathered together and are held together. You push Jesus out, you, you relegate him to some unimportant role in any situation, and you will begin to feel and experience things fall apart. In relationships, at work, at school, at church, you'll say, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand, what's, what's wrong, why, why is this happening? You'll feel things pulling apart. But if instead you say, I'm gonna choose to remember the mystery of his will, Things will be different. That in Christ, all things are gathered together. And it is Christ that holds all things together. And it is Christ that will hold me together. And you choose to say, Christ is gonna be my everything today. I'm, I'm gonna get in the flow of what God is already doing. And I'm gonna give him preeminence in every area of my life. Preeminence just means first place that there's not one area of your life where you're gonna say, God, I want you as an advisor in this area. You are the third most important opinion I listen to on this. I want you to know that. But it's saying, God, be preeminent. Be first in every area of my life. Hold me together. And he will. He will. When your hopes and dreams are, are, are tied up in earthly things, relationships and, and stuff down here, you're always gonna be disappointed. You know, I've realized in life, is as, as soon as you start feeling like things are really getting ahead financially, things are coming together, it's when the washing machine breaks. It's when the alternator goes on your car, you know. And the frustration you feel at those moments is a check-in from God. You know what I've realized? It's like God checking in and saying, oh, so it's, it's me holding you together. Let's find out. Let's find out, Right? And in those moments, I, I had a moment this week, I was talking about being under conviction. I'd worked on this giant spreadsheet, I was doing some accounting for the church, done like two hours, come back the next day and it's just gone. Like no explanation, like I know how to save a document, you know, and, uh, and I'm like, the new version of Office even saves because they've realized how stupid we all are by itself. I come back and it's gone and, and I mean, I just like let loose a, a very, um, expressful, colorful stream of, uh, of emotion uh, to the walls of the carport that I was working in. And my six-year-old son is playing outside, and he knocks on the door, and he just says, what's all the fuss about? 
I'm like, Daddy's just feeling a little frustrated today. And he just says, oh, is there anything I could do to help? I'm like, no, you, you already did, man. Thanks, buddy. I gave him a hug, and I went inside. And, uh, and you have this realization that you, you think that you're letting God hold you together. But your reaction in those moments tells you. It just says, let's find out if it's God holding you together. Or let's find out if you're telling everyone it's God that, hold, that holds me together. But you're only saying that because right now everything's working out. Right now everything's great. And now you can preach to other people, right? Now you can say, like, listen, you need to just trust God. It's him that holds you together. You know, your tires break and you're on the side of the road. There is no God! You know, it's like, let's check in and find out where we're really at. It's a good opportunity to check in. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be problems. We've got to remember, it is, it is all about Jesus. And that's where all of this is going. And so I, w- I want to ask you today, and I'm asking myself too, do you understand the mystery of God's will? Does your life show that you understand that it's God holding you together? Or is that just words written on a page that you're reading over this morning? What does your life look like? In John 13, too, we find Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. Time is, time is running out. Jesus knows where this is going. He's headed towards an excruciatingly painful death on the cross. And he's having the Last Supper with his disciples. And it hits me that they don't even know this is the Last Supper. It's not like they're, they're getting together and being like, now we've all got to get in position because Da Vinci's going to like paint this scene. So John, you need to be over here because this is the Last Supper. You know, they're just like, we're eating dinner tonight like any other night. We just happen to be in Jerusalem for Passover right now. And this is what it says in John 13 too. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Now if there was ever a moment when Jesus would have been justified in freaking out, I think it would have been then. He could have said, my, my whole world is falling apart. One of these guys who's been living with me every day for three years is about to sell me out for some cash. I'm headed to death on a cross. This doesn't end with me getting my own TV show and everybody loving me. I'm here to die and die the worst death imaginable. I'm God. Why am I doing this? If, if anybody's justified in freaking out, it's Jesus. He even knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. But he doesn't freak out. He gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples. When others would have thrown in the towel, Jesus picked it up and started washing his disciples' feet. Take a look at verse 3 because Jesus knew something. It said that he knew he had come from God and he knew that he was going back to God. Jesus knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. And thus, he could be at peace in this present problematic situation. And you too can have peace, because you know where you've come from, and you know where you're going. You know how it ends. I was made by him, and I exist for him. And this ends with me being gathered to be with Christ. I know how this ends. This is just time and a problematic season in between the two. 
through the word of God, we can understand that all things are gathered together in Christ. We know where we're going. We know who made us. We know how this ends. Pontius Pilate had, had already dealt with two riots in Jerusalem. A warning had been issued to him from Rome. If you can't get a handle on these Jews, get them under control, you're going to be recalled from your governorship. You're not going to be in charge anymore of this area. As tension rose and a mob began to shout, crucify him, crucify him, towards the man that Pontius Pilate, a non-believer, could find no fault in, Pontius Pilate washed his hands literally of the whole situation, said, I'm not having anything to do with this. And so Pontius Pilate fell apart, and Jesus was held together. And when the pressure builds on my life, I'm either going to be like Pontius Pilate and say, I, I just, want, I just want to be done with this. Forget this. Forget this, man. I'm done. Or I'm going to be like Jesus, and I'm going to say, I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. I'm at peace. In fact, I'm so at peace, I'm still able to care about other people during my crisis. I can be others-oriented because it's not all about me. Don't worry about me. I know how this ends. I know who's with me. I know who's holding me together. I'm going to be okay. Check in in a month and you'll find that out. But we need to let Jesus be the king of our life. We need to let him be in charge and let him be the one that's holding us together. Jesus is the beginning, Jesus is the end. He's the Alpha, the Omega, he's the center of everything. Everything is moving towards him, everything. And so should we. The whole of human history is moving towards Jesus. And so we need to let our lives be in line with that. Paul continues in verse 11 of Ephesians 1. It says, in him, Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance. We've obtained him being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We spoke about this last week. The truth is that we belong to God and he chose us to belong to him, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. It's incredible that, that he, knew, he knew the doubt you'd have. He knew those seasons where he wants to hold you together and you would instead choose to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to freak out. Thank you very much because it's me holding myself together. He knew that. He knew how many times he would have to come through and be faithful. And you would still forget. You would still act like he's going to leave you and abandon you the next time you get tested. He knew all that. He knew how long it would take you to let him be in charge. And he still chose you. He still chose to love you. That's why his love for us is so incredible. That's why we love him back so much. In verse 13, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Do you see in verse 13 that belief in Jesus is the same as trust in Jesus? Belief in Jesus is the same as trust in Jesus. Trust with what? Trust with everything. With your future, your relationships, your career, your time, your family, your money, your parenting, everything. You can't believe in God and not trust him at the same time. To believe in Jesus is to give him the keys to your life and say, I need you to drive. I need you to drive. That's what it means to believe in him. It means to trust him. Verse 13 goes on saying, In whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And the whole idea in verse 13 and 14 is the idea of a shipping merchant where you would 
create a package that you wanted to get shipped somewhere. You wouldn't go to UPS. You'd take it down to the dock. You'd have a ring. You'd put some wax on it, put your seal on it. And what that meant is nobody is allowed to open that package unless they have a matching ring. And so if you had somebody working for your company or someone you were sending it to, they would have a matching ring on the other side of that journey. And when it got to the port, nobody was allowed to open that package unless they had the proof that it belonged to them. And so what it's saying in Ephesians 1 is when your life is given to Jesus Christ, he puts his seal in you and that seal is the Holy Spirit coming into your life. That's how you know you belong to God. And just like this package, you might go across a stormy ocean Your ship might wreck in the middle of the ocean. You might get washed up on some desert island. But what it means is that the guy who sent that package is going to come look for you. And he's going to find you. And no one else is allowed to touch or open that package or claim it as their own. Except the one who packaged it up in the first place. Who says, this belongs to me. And just like that, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And that is the guarantee that when this is all said and done, the only one that can claim you is Jesus. The only one that can claim you is Jesus. He has put his seal in you, the Holy Spirit, and you belong to him. And nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever change that.